0: Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for now the opportunity we have to walk through another couple of chapters of this amazing love letter that you've given us. Father, this amazing testimony to the truth. We live in a world, Lord, that you know. You warned us ahead of time. You said it would go this way, but a a world that is very deceptive and full of lies. And perhaps one of the, the great blessings of being in your word is just... We get to get washed with truth. we allow you, Father, to speak as we take it all in. And this, this truth overcomes us and encourages us and reminds us that you are king and that you are God. Father, tonight as we consider some more kings, I pray that you will bless our time, our study. We invite and ask your Holy Spirit to be speaking here tonight and teaching us, all of us together. We yield ourselves to you, Father, in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Hezekiah, chapter—sorry, no, Second Kings, chapter twenty—about Hezekiah. It's Kind of that running joke is there is no book of Hezekiah. So if someone says. Well, just look it up in Hezekiah chapter 3, verse 12. There's there's no book of Hezekiah. Beginning in verse 1, 2 Kings chapter 20, "...in those days Hezekiah became mortally ill. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, came to him and said, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live." Then he turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech you, how I have walked before you in truth and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Return, say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says the Lord, the God of your father David, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord. I will add fifteen years to your life. And I will deliver you and the city from the hand of the king of Assyria. And I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And then Isaiah said, Take a cake of figs. And they took it and laid it on the boil. And he recovered. Well, Sunday morning we covered the broader story of Hezekiah. We looked at the last few years of his life. We talked about this section in chapter 20. We jumped ahead to chapter 21 as well. Kind of back and forth to look at this this king of prayer. This man who who knew how to pray. He had a relationship with God similar to David. He was a man of prayer. And it was because he was a man of prayer that he's considered, I believe, one of the three greatest kings of Israel Asa, Hezekiah, and Josiah together. But as we went over this on Sunday, we kind of jumped around. We we concluded chapter 19, but chapters 20 and 21, we jumped around and pulled some things out. What I want to do tonight is go back and flesh this out, chapters 20 and 21, and consider a few things that we skipped over. But before we do that, I want to ask you to again tonight consider a question that I asked on Sunday morning. And that is, are you good to go? Are you ready if the Lord said to you, Tonight your life is required of you. If the prophet Isaiah showed up at your door and said, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Are you ready to go? Now, admitting you're ready to go doesn't mean you're going to go right away. So, relax. But are you ready? Are you prepared? Hezekiah was not Now this surprised me, because digging deeper we found out, we saw this on Sunday morning from Isaiah chapter 38, where Hezekiah writes in his own words what happened when he was praying this prayer. We learned that Hezekiah, he was crying out for something from a whiny, uh, despairing place. He didn't understand something about his relationship with God. There was something missing in in the long term, in the eternal aspect, the spiritual aspect of his relationship with the Lord. When he learned he was going to die, he turned his face to the wall, the Bible tells us. You have done that, I'm sure, at least when you were a child throwing a temper tantrum. Throwing yourself on your bed, turning your face to the wall, back to the world, and crying. This is what Hezekiah is doing. Isaiah 38.14 tells us he was twittering like a swallow and moaning like a dove. Just whining to the Lord. And he even cried out, Isaiah 38.10, In the middle of my life, I am, am I to enter the gates of Sheol? I am deprived of the rest of my years. I said, I will not see the Lord. The Lord in the land of the living. I will look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. I read that and I think, you know, Hezekiah apparently misunderstood grace. Grace. He didn't recognize that as a faithful servant of the Lord He would in fact see the Lord again As he cries out I will no longer see the Lord He's thinking in a very temporary mindset He's in despair, I'll give him that He's depressed and bummed out Probably not really thinking about what he's saying But he misses this point Hezekiah would and will see the Lord again Philippians chapter 1 verse 21 A passage that we often quote here Paul said, For me, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. I'm hard-pressed from both directions. Having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is so much better. And yet, to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Greatest of the apostles, Paul says this, and, And I wonder, where do you stand tonight? In your life, and please take a moment, don't raise your hand, don't shout it out, but consider seriously where do you stand if Jesus said tonight is it? On a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being distracted by detours, and 10 being determined to depart, where would you fall? Distracted by the detours of life, I'm headed this way, that way, I'm not even sure really where I am, or I am absolutely determined that when Jesus says go, I'm gone. Where do you fall on the scale? Jesus said in Matthew 24, 42 Therefore be on the alert You do not know which day your Lord is coming Be ready Verse 44 tells us For the Son of Man is coming at an hour When you do not think He will Now if you've been around the bridge for a while You know one of my favorite things to ask Is how many people believe that Jesus is going to come Before I'm done teaching tonight Show of hands Russ knows to raise his hand Nobody else ever does and that's great because it ups the chances that Jesus will come before I'm done studying tonight, which doesn't indicate it's going to be an extra long study. It's just I'm making a point here. Revelation verse nine, chapter 19 verse 7 says, "Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the lamb has come, and listen to this, His bride has made herself ready. Have you? Are we? Are we ready to go? at a moment's notice when Jesus calls now I recognize that this concept of readiness and keeping watch and being alert for Jesus I recognize this is something we talk a lot about at the bridge it seems to make its way to the forefront at least every few weeks if not more often than that readiness alertness being aware of our surroundings reading the signs of the time as we live in the times of the signs and being ready to go that's Isaiah's intent for Hezekiah Get your house in order Get ready to go How do we do that? How do we live in a state of expectant readiness? You know, it's something we have to continue to come back to As Peter wrote when he wrote his, his epistles He said, I, I'm going to stir you up by way of reminder I know you know these things I'm going to tell you again And I'm going to keep telling you this Again and again and again Until Jesus comes So we don't forget So we don't settle back As we live this life Day in and day out As we're going through our walk and our business and our jobs and our homes and our responsibilities, we have got to be stirred up by way of reminder that Jesus could come at any moment. I want to be a 10 on the scale, determined to depart, ready to go. How do we do that? I want to give you some keys tonight to an ordered house. Going back over the story, there are a handful of things that I think can encourage us to think about living ready, which are also keys, by the way, to living vibrant and vital lives in Jesus Christ today. And the first one is simply this. Set your house in order. Set your house in order. Verse 1 again. Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Favorite song of mine by an artist, Rich Mullins, who is with Jesus now. He wrote, live like you'll die tomorrow, die knowing you'll live forever. It's one of my favorite things that he said. And Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, he said, No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it's to be revealed with fire. The fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work on which which he has built on it remains, he'll receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but... He himself will be saved, yet yet so as through fire. Now, again, another verse we've read quite a few times. And talked about quite a few times. Paul is making a picture. He's drawing this, this beautiful allegory of building things. And he says, we can in our life build with wood, hand, straw. These things burn up. Wood, hand, straw would be things like stocks and bonds. Things like our homes. things you know, The material things that are not going to last eternally. Or, Paul says, we can build with gold, silver, and precious stones, which I believe he's indicating are the souls of humanity. People around us. That we can invest eternally as we invest in the lives of others. Whether it's teaching a child in Sunday school, or sharing Jesus with someone who doesn't know Him, that is building with gold, silver, and precious stones. We're helping the dailies... Move in this week. And I was talking to Monica for a few minutes uh, in between trying to keep myself alive underneath the grand piano that we're bringing in. And she was saying that they had a move early on in their life that really had an impact on her. The military was helping them move and they had a bunch of stuff and I guess it got all crated up and it was about a $10,000 move. And she said by the time they got their crate opened up and looked inside, everything was trash. There was water damage. There were pieces of furniture and everything all over the place. It was completely destroyed. And she said it was full of damaged and busted things, she said, that I loved. I loved these things. These were important to me. These are beautiful things that I really have myself invested in. And she said I realized in that moment how little value they really held. This spoken by the same woman who now has eleven kids, right? Seven through adoption? Which is building with precious stones. And I love that. Set your house in order. Be about the things that are eternal. Build with what matters. Don't get hung up on worldly things that are just going to fry anyway. Now I'm not saying, by the way, that everyone here is called to adopt. However, every one of us is called to engage in the adoption of lost souls. Because that's what we are. Romans 8 says we all have the spirit of adoption. We've all been adopted into God's family. That's the picture we're given. And so every one of us, if you speak a word of Jesus to somebody and their life is saved, guess what? That person was just adopted into God's family. And so using this picture of the daily family, how it just keeps getting bigger and bigger, and I pretty much think they're going to take care of our entire children's ministry, just their family. It's a great picture of God's family growing, and what He's called us to, and what He wants us to be about. Things that matter. A Christian who sets his or her house in order is simply one who builds on the foundation of Jesus Christ with things that last. But Hezekiah says, No, Lord, heal me. Heal me and I don't want to go your way. I don't want to do it your I, I want to do it my way. Give me 15 more years. And we talked about on Sunday what happened with those 15 years. Hezekiah showed off the treasuries of the household of the Lord to Babylon, whetted their appetite so they would eventually come back and take it all. And Hezekiah also sired a son Manasseh. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here. But this concept of setting our house in order is so important. Let me show you something else before I move on. Verse 7, Isaiah said, Take a cake of figs and they took it and laid it on the boil and he recovered. It's the original Fig Newton. Right there in Scripture. Isn't that great? They just put it right on there. But listen, long before, it was ooey gooey rich and chewy inside. Or golden flaky tender cakey outside. It was darn tootin' good medicine. This was how they did it. And I want you to pay attention to this. I'm not just trying to be funny. They took a cake of figs and they applied it to the boil. So he had some kind of a lesion, some kind of an abscess that was bringing him to the point of death. Isaiah doesn't pray for it. I mean, do you catch this? Isaiah says, Okay, all right. We're going we're gonna to give him... So here's, here's how we're going to heal him. He doesn't lay hands on him and the, the boil miraculously disappears. He doesn't call down... You know, something from heaven, a special rain that, that comes on it and heals it. He, he he doesn't do anything spiritual. He says, All right, you get fifteen more years. Someone get a fig Newton and put it on the guy's stomach and he'll be okay. Do you realize what's going on here? This is not a spiritual remedy, it's a medical remedy. Anybody could have done it. Now I tell you this for this reason. Do we have a horse trying to come in? Cow Cow is the board up yeah, Okay Well he's just dumb enough That he won't realize that He can get through there Hopefully If he does Run <laughs> A cake of mashed figs Gang Was used as As like a balm Or a salve For boils Abscesses And leper's sores It was a medical remedy And I'm saying this For one reason Listen closely This may shock you But give me a second Prayer does not heal Prayer does not heal. Hezekiah prayed for healing, but the scripture tells us the method that worked was common medicine, a cake of figs. Prayer does not heal. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 7, when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose they will be heard for their many words. What's he saying? He's saying the Gentiles believe it's the prayer that heals them. It's not the prayer, it's the Lord. The power is not the words we speak. The power is not in our ability to express grandiose, religious, pompous things. The power is in the Spirit of Jesus who is the one who heals us. Prayer does not heal. Prayer simply requests healing. The Lord said in Exodus 15.26, If you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God, do what is right in His sight, give ear to His commandments, keep His statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians, for listen, I, the Lord, am your healer. I'm your healer. That's the point. And I bring this up because I think sometimes as we pray, we can begin to assign power to our words, and our words do not contain power. The power is in the Spirit of God. We've got to keep that focus in the right place. Otherwise, we get pompous. I prefer, honestly, the prayers of someone who's just learning to the prayers of someone who's been praying for 40 years often, especially if the one who's been praying for 40 years is praying in kind of a a religious tone. I love the prayers of someone who's kind of stumbling through it. I love the prayers of children because they have no idea what the parameters are. They have no idea what the rules are, how you're supposed to do it. And they will, they will say anything. Sometimes embarrassing things they will say and do in their prayers. Because they're not playing games. They're just going to the Lord. And that's what true prayer is. The truth altogether, gang, the truth is the Lord is our healer. We're going on in verse 8. Now Hezekiah said to Isaiah, what will be the sign that the Lord will heal me? And that I shall go up to the house of the Lord on the third day. By the way, is it okay to ask the Lord for a sign? I think it is. Now Jesus did say to the Pharisees, an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign. But the issue there was they were asking for a sign when Jesus had already given a hundred signs. And they just weren't wanting the signs. They were just trying to make him prove himself again and again and again. Their hearts were not in the right place. Gideon asked for a sign a couple of different times put dew on the ground but make my fleece here make that dry God did it okay put dew on the fleece and make the ground all around it dry and God did it God has no problem giving a sign and it's okay as a believer I think I think to ask for a sign to say Lord can you confirm this can you show me something can you, can you help me know that this is you and so that's what Hezekiah is asking for how am I going to know that I actually have 15 more years so I'm not worried about this And then I shall go up to the house of the Lord on the third day, verse 9, Isaiah said, This shall be the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do the thing that he has spoken. Shall the shadow go forward ten steps, or go back ten steps? So Hezekiah answered, It is easy for the shadow to decline ten steps. No, but let the shadow turn backward ten steps. And Isaiah the prophet cried to the Lord and he brought the shadow on the stairway back ten steps by which it had gone down on the stairway of Ahaz. What's going on here? The stairway of Ahaz was a stairway there probably at the temple or, or possibly at the palace compound. But it was a stairway that was designed as a sundial. The idea originated in Babylon and Ahaz brought that idea back. And he built a sundial, but it was an actual stairway. And so each step on this stairway indicated an increment of time. Ten steps, commentators may have no idea how they come up with this, but they figure ten steps is anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour of, of actual time. So that the king could look at the shadow on the steps and go, It's 4 o'clock. Okay, it's, it's 4.10. It's 4.15. So it was a sundial that we're talking about, this stairway of Ahaz. But understand this: this miracle, this sign that God gives, is not necessarily a worldwide cataclysmic event where the sun is turned back and time literally went backwards for 45 minutes. It's more likely that this is just a localized miracle where the Lord gave Hezekiah assurance in the same way he responded to Gideon's request for a sign back in Judges chapter 6. Kyle and Delich in their commentary said So far as the miracle is concerned The words of the text do not require That we should assume that the sun receded Or the rotation of the earth was reversed But simply affirm that there was a miraculous movement backwards Of the shadow upon the dial Which might be accounted for by a miraculous refraction Of the rays of the sun Effected by God at the prophet's prayer As far as we know God probably could have just stuck his finger in the way for a few minutes You know, making the shadow that way the issue is not was there some big event. The issue was God responded to Isaiah's request for the sign and made it actually go back. Now, what really caught my attention here was Hezekiah's choice. He could either have the shadow move forward, indicating a passage of time, or he, he could have the shadow move backward, indicating an extra amount of time, and he chose backward, which is what he wanted. Remember, he wanted more time. Give me more life. And so when offered the opportunity, the shadow can go forward, meaning the day is going by quicker, or the shadow can go back. Hezekiah is getting as much time as he possibly can. Fifteen years and forty-five minutes. You know, give me a little extra time. And I tell you this to say the second key, I believe, to expectant readiness is step forward, not back. Isaiah is looking back or Hezekiah is looking back on his life and he's seen this life and he wants more of this more of what he's had not what's ahead don't, don't move it forward move it back And we are called as Christians to step forward not back Titus 2.11 for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly righteously and godly in the present age by the way verse 12 have you done, how, how have you been doing on that one? The last couple of weeks. When you when you hold up your life, my life, to the standard of Scripture, are you denying ungodliness and worldly desires and living sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age? He goes on and says, Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, we should be the looky-loose in the way we live our life. Heads out the window. This is what Reggie loves to do as we come up the driveway when he's in the car. If we roll down the window, his head is out the window, all dogs are this way, you know, with the ears flapping. But that's a picture of Christians. We should be the dogs with our heads out the window looking for what's coming. Can't wait for what is around the corner. Even if it's beyond what we can see, we're looking forward, we're stepping forward, not back. And John said, everyone who has this hope... That is the return of Jesus. Everyone who has this hope fixed on himself purifies himself just as he is pure. Why is that? Well, again, Paul said, we're to deny ungodliness worldly desires, live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the coming of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. If I am looking for Jesus coming, guess what? It denies my flesh. It calls me to Righteousness. I can't sit in a bar and look out the window waiting for Jesus to come. It's real hard to do that. It's hard to be getting drunk and watching for the Savior. It's hard to be feeding my flesh and expectantly waiting for Jesus. The reality is the more I wait for Jesus, the more denying the flesh is easy to do. And the more purified I am before the Lord. So don't trace the old ways. Set your pace to the new ways in Jesus. Paul said, "Forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead." Did you see? Have you been watching the Olympics and Michael Phelps? Did you guys see the men's 400 meter freestyle? That was awesome. Especially because France lost. I just, I I mean, a shout must have been heard around the world. I know it was heard in my house it was late at night when, when they ran the relay and I recorded it and the next morning I'm having my breakfast and I went back because I didn't know what happened and I didn't want to know I just wanted to watch it and I'm watching these guys swim and Lizak, the guy the last length of the relay is swimming and he's behind the French guy what was Elaine uh, Bernard doesn't that sound French? Bernard and he's swimming along and he's out ahead almost a full body length if you saw it and Lezak is, is trying to catch up And he's just dogging through They come down to the last 50 meters And Lezak is almost tied up with him And I'm just sitting there with my cereal going Yes, yes, yes you know. And at the very last second Lezak stretched And eight one hundredths of a second Ahead of France America won because Lezak wanted it. He wanted it more. He was reaching for the goal, for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Well, maybe he was just going for the goal. But that's the point. That's the idea. Reaching out there. We want to be first across the line in Jesus Christ. Well, France got egg in their face. America's looking good in the pool. And we're going to read on. Verse 12. At that time... Baradak Baladan, a son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters in a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And Hezekiah listened to them and showed them all his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, precious oil, the house of his armor, and all that was found in his treasuries. There was nothing in his house, nor in all his dominion, that Hezekiah did not show them. And, Hezekiah, and Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said, What did these men say? And from where have they come to you? And Hezekiah said, They've come from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, What have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, They've seen all that's in my house. There's nothing among my treasuries that I have not shown them. And Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried away to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Some of your sons... Who shall issue from you Whom you will beget will be taken away And they will become officials in the palace Of the king of Babylon Set your house in order Step forward not back Number three Secure your treasure Don't show it off Secure your treasure Don't show it off Now I know we talked about Hezekiah doing this on Sunday But there is a life application here for us Don't flaunt what you have don't flaunt your treasure in Jesus Christ in other words there's no need to get on a high horse of self-righteous judgmental religion we don't have to defend our belief in Jesus you know where your treasure is right And Jesus says store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moss nor rust destroys where thieves do not break into steal. for where your treasure is there your heart will be also we have a treasury we are storing up an eternal treasure. We know this. We know we have our salvation. We know we have the love of the Father. We know we are sons and daughters of the King. We don't have to fight about it. And sometimes we do. Sometimes when in talking religion with friends or family members we start to get haughty and angry and frustrated because they don't see it our way. And we begin to, to, to speak down to them. We begin to flaunt... The treasure house that we have And that's not the way to go about it We're not called to flaunt What we have before other people What do you mean? Listen to this verse I think Paul can put this better than me 1 Thessalonians 4.9 Paul describes the Christian walk Not as a loud, bombastic, Bible-banging walk He describes the walk of a Christian As someone who has a quiet confidence as someone who is not showy in their arrogance, but who just knows what they believe. There's something very attractive about that. He puts it this way, 1 Thessalonians 4.9. says, As to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. By the way, this church at Thessalonica was a very loving group of people, as we can tell from Paul's letters. He said, indeed, you do practice love toward all the brethren who are in all of Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. And listen, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business, work with your hands, just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. He says, he says you'll love each other on the inside, and that's great. You're a loving church, Thessalonica. That's obvious throughout Macedonia. Everyone knows, man, those people in Thessalonica love each other. So, but now, now what I want the outsiders to see, people who are not believers, I want them to see you just quietly and confidently going about your business. Lead your life. Living for Christ, you've got your, your treasure secured. You don't have to show it off. Just... Be still and confident in Jesus. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul pray, places a great importance on the lifestyle testimony of Christians in front of non-believers. And as you've probably heard before, it's rarely our words that win people to Christ. It's our walk. You don't have to say, look at my treasures. Check out my temple gold in my armory. Just quietly walk in expectant readiness with the Lord. Verse 19. Well, then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he thought, Is it not so, if there will be peace and truth in my days? Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and all his might, and how he made the pool and the conduit and brought water into the city, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and Manasseh his son became king in his place. Hezekiah did work with his hands in his last 15 years. Something else we didn't talk about Sunday. Back in 1880, a young boy was swimming in the Gihon Spring in Jerusalem. And he found something inscribed on a wall. He didn't know what it meant. Brought attention to it. It's been later called the Siloam Inscription. And it was carved into a rock there in Jerusalem. And it said as follows. While we were still axes... Or while were still axes, each man toward his fellow, and while there were still three cubits to be cut through, there was heard the voice of a man calling to his fellows. For there was an overlap in the rock on the right and on the left. And when the tunnel was driven through, the quarrymen hewed the rock, each man toward his fellow, axe against axe, and the water flowed from the spring toward the reservoir for 1,200 cubits. This amazing discovery, gang, led people to begin digging. And in 1838, Edward Robinson discovered what today is called Hezekiah's Tunnel. This was a tunnel that was built by Hezekiah. And we see this in the last verse here, how he made the pool and the conduit and brought water into the city. Are these things not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? One of the things that Hezekiah is known for is the the carving out of this tunnel. It is an amazing thing. It's, it's an S-shaped, 1,750 foot long tunnel through solid rock. And the tunnel was built to bring water from one side of the city of David to the other side of the city of David, especially during wartime. So they could get water from the spring into the city protected You can walk through this tunnel. In fact, if you join us next March on our trip to Israel, you can walk through this tunnel yourself. You'll see it in person. But it's been called one of the greatest works of water engineering technology in the pre-classical age. They look at history and there there was one other tunnel that was cut that was similar somewhere else. And these two things stand out more than anything else. I love that the scriptures are constantly borne up by archaeology and by history. And these things that we read here, and we just kind of can skip over that. Okay, he made you know, the conduit and brought water into the city. Big deal. It is a big deal. Because at the right time in history, God reveals these things. This isn't just someone making it up. This really happened. It's another great example of archaeology supporting Scripture. And Psalm 85.11, one of my favorite verses, and I say it a lot when we're in Israel, Truth springs from the earth. Truth springs from the earth. Most of what we see when we travel there is archaeological digs and finds that support Scripture, and it's fantastic. Well, Hezekiah did some great things in those last 15 years, but as we talked about Sunday, one of the things that Hezekiah did not set in order in his house had to do with his son, Manasseh. His son, Manasseh. This is interesting to me. The Bible talks about The next generation. But when it talks about the next generation, it's not concerned with iPods. And it's not concerned with tech devices or even Star Trek. It's concerned with our children. Looking to the next generation as a critical aspect of expectant living or setting our house in order. Number four, gang, we need to see to our offspring. See to... Our offspring. Now I realize some of you here don't have any offspring of your own but you are still called to see to our offspring or see to the next generation. But what does Hezekiah do? Listen to this closely. In verse 19 it says, Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. This is the judgment. Okay? He's just heard that Babylon is going to come and wipe them out. He's just heard that Babylon is going to come and take some of his own sons away into captivity and his response is the word of the Lord which you have spoken is good now he's accepting it that's okay but listen to what else he says for he thought is it not so if there will be peace and truth in my days what does that mean it means okay well as long as there's peace in my last 15 years I guess that's cool my children may be taken off into captivity but I'm okay for the next 15 years right it's going to be smooth sailing for me right And there's not a concern here for the next generation. On the upside, Hezekiah accepted the Lord's punishment and appreciated that there would be peace in his days. 2 Chronicles 32.26 says that Hezekiah humbled the pride in his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come on them in the days of Hezekiah. But if I'm understanding verse 19 here, Hezekiah is saying as long as my last 15 years are years of peace and quiet for me, good let the next generation worry with themselves. And tragically, in Hezekiah's case, there will be no legacy. He dug a great tunnel into the city, but his son's spirit will be dry as dust. The water of the spirit will not reach Hezekiah's son, Ammon. Or sorry, Manasseh. Manasseh will not receive from his father the love of the Lord that his father has. We are called, gang, to see to our offspring because growing up requires instruction. The older I get, the more I understand this. I told Cheryl just a couple of weeks back, wouldn't it be great to be able to go back and parent all over again, knowing what we know now? Being able to apply the things that we learned the hard way, you know, mostly through Corey, you know, really messing him up. Wouldn't it be nice to go back and apply those things? I'm just kidding. Son. You know, whatever age you are, you can, because we are all called to be teachers. Like, Christian, I was just thinking about you as I'm talking about this point. See to our offspring. You know, that may be the kind of thing that, that when I was in your place in life and I didn't have kids of my own, I probably would have just not written that down. Okay, whatever. <laughs> I don't have any offspring, so I'm not going to worry about that one right now. And, and in thinking about that, gang, turn in your Bibles over to Deuteronomy 11 just for a moment. Keep your finger in Second Kings. Deuteronomy eleven Verse eighteen. Deuteronomy eleven, eighteen. The Lord said through Moses, he said, You shall therefore impress these words of mine on your heart and on your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall teach them to your sons, talking of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk along the road, and when you lie down, and when you rise up, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, so that your days and the days of your sons may be multiplied in the land on which the Lord swore to your fathers to give them, as long as the heavens remain above the earth. So he said, write these words on your doorposts. And so today the Jews have mezuzahs that are little containers that contain scriptures that they put in and they're on the doorposts of all the homes even in the hotels every single room in a hotel in Jerusalem has a mezuzah beside it with a little scripture tucked inside why? because of this verse right here and in addition to this you will still see today the Orthodox Jews especially wearing phylacteries and tefillin tefillin and phylacteries these are the things that if if you watch these guys going by they've got little leather boxes strapped to their forehead Or they have another little leather box that's strapped to the left wrist. And inside those boxes are scriptures. Because Moses said that you shall have them as a sign on your hand and frontals on your forehead. And the Talmud even says, whoever has the tefillin bound to his head and arm is protected from sin. Now, again, holding my Bible does not protect me from sin. You know, in fact, the power is not in the pages and the leather. The power is in the Spirit. As we just talked about with prayer, the power is not in the words we speak. The power is in the Spirit we speak to. But so, so focused were and often are the more Orthodox Jewish people that they actually came up with this idea: phylacteries and tephalin, to, to hold the Scriptures as close to their heads and their wrists as possible. It's interesting to me. But these things do not protect us from sin. Oh, the Bible does help. Psalm 119.9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure by keeping it according to your word? And your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. But the point was not to turn the word into a religious relic, but that the people might keep it close at hand. Or they might keep it in their minds, or speak it often, coming and going in their homes. So if you want your house to be set in order for the Lord's coming, you see to your offspring. The context of what Moses was saying is, have the word ever before you so that you're teaching your kids. So that the children are hearing what you believe, what the word says. We had this long discussion in staff meeting about this this morning. Several months ago, I I talked on Sunday morning about the parents' responsibility to teach their children during communion. We keep the kids in here during communion on purpose on Sunday morning. That is not just an oversight. It's not because when communion's over, it's the easiest time to send the kids out. And you're probably going to hear me talk about this again in the next few weeks on a Sunday, because people need to understand this. Michelle brought up that some people had come to her as director of children's ministry and said... Can we get the kids out earlier Maybe before communion Because they don't understand What's going on anyway And they're back there Sipping the juice And they're running around and, And you know And no one's really telling their kids What to do anyway Moms and dads It's your responsibility During this time To tell your kids What's going on To show them To talk to them About what's happening During communion To see to your offspring Here's the deal The whole idea of seeing to our offspring and teaching the children, it is a parental responsibility, but it's so much more. It's a church responsibility. It is our collective responsibility. James in James 1.27 said, Pure and undefiled religion, and the word there is threskia in the Greek. Threskia, pure and undefiled worship. It is a word that indicates worship. Is, in the sight of God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. So you can't tell me that the church, the church, the entire church, whether you have kids or not, we all have a responsibility to kids, all of us. And that's what Deuteronomy 11 is talking about. And that's what that's what Hezekiah missed with his own son. He gets 15 more years. Twelve of those years, his son Manasseh would be under his care, and his son Manasseh never learns about the Lord, never really gets it, because Hezekiah does not see to. His offspring. He was great, but his offspring was definitely awesome. Look at verse 1 of chapter 21. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. He reigned 55 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Hephzibah. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed and he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah as Ahab king of Israel had done. And he worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. We talked about him Sunday. This Manasseh was evil. He was the Ahab of Judah. As idolatrous and vapid and wicked as Ahab was in Israel so Manasseh was in Judah. Verse 4 says he built altars in the house of the Lord in the temple of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, I will put my name. He built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He made his son pass through the fire, which would be infant sacrifice. He practiced witchcraft and used divination and dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. The Bible says in verse 7, Then he carved an image, or set the carved image of Asherah that he had made in the house of the Lord, which the Lord said to David and to his son Solomon, In this house, and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I'll put my name forever. And I will not make the feet of Israel wander anymore from the land which I gave their fathers, if only they will observe to do according to all that I have commanded them, and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not Listen. And Manasseh seduced them to do evil more than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. And by the way, this is the progression of sin. Not only did the people in Judah get bad, but they were worse. They actually progressed worse than the people who were before them. The Canaanites were evil enough to be wiped out from the land. Judah took it a step further and were even worse in their sin. Verse 10 tells us, Now the Lord spoke... Through his servants the prophets saying Because Manasseh king of Judah has done these abominations Having done wickedly more than all the Amorites did Who were before him And has also made Judah sin with his idols Therefore thus says the Lord the God of Israel Behold I am bringing such calamity on Jerusalem and Judah That whoever hears of it both his ears will tingle And during this time During this time of the kings And we'll start to get into this after Matthew The prophets were sent One after another after another. Specifically during this time, God sent Hosea, Joel, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Isaiah. All five of these guys were sent to these kings to try and stop the progression of sin. But they would not listen. The lights were on, but nobody's house was in order. Verse 13. I will stretch over Jerusalem, the Lord says. The line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab. In other words, what happened to them is going to happen right here. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. I will abandon it. By the way, Hannah, that reminds me. There's a popcorn bowl in the sink that needs to be cleaned. Out of the <laughs> I will abandon the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies, and they will become as plunder and spoil to all their enemies. Because they have done evil in my sight And have been provoking me to anger Since the day their fathers came from Egypt Even to this day Moreover Manasseh shed very much innocent blood Until he had filled Jerusalem From one end to another Besides his sin with which he made Judah sin In doing evil in the sight of the Lord And we said on Sunday That one of those people who Manasseh killed Was likely Isaiah Who he had sawed in half He was a very bloody king Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did and his sin which he committed are not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah. And Manasseh slept with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his own house and the garden of Uzzah and Ammon his son became king in his place. And that's it for Manasseh. A brutal, wicked, evil king who undid everything his father Hezekiah did but listen, he reigned 55 years. Now that's uncharacteristic of what's happened so far. As we read through the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, the evil and wicked kings tended to reign a very short time. Whereas the good kings got a long and extended reign. Why, if this guy was so bad, does God give him 55 years? Hold that thought, we'll come back to it in just a minute. Verse 19. Ammon, this is now Manasseh's son, was 22 years old when he became king. Ammon is the 15th king of Judah. Manasseh was obviously then the 14th. Ammon was 22 years old when he became king. And he reigned two years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Meshulameth, the daughter of Haruz, of Jotba. He did evil in the sight of the Lord as Manasseh his father, his father had done. Now that makes sense. He reigned two years. He was evil. Of course he wouldn't reign a very long time. He walked in all the way that his father had walked, and served the idols that his father had served, and worshipped them. And he forsook the Lord, the God of his fathers, and did not walk in the way of the Lord. The servants of Ammon then conspired against him, and killed the king in his own house. Well, then the people of the land killed all those who had conspired against King Ammon. and the people of the land made Josiah his son king in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Ammon which he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? He was buried in his grave in the garden of Uzzah, and Josiah his son became king in his place. We'll get to Josiah on Sunday. Ammon, as Judah's 15th king, was just a bad guy, who lasted two years, and gets wiped out. And the only good thing that we can point to that Ammon did, one good thing, is he fathered Josiah. (laughs) The only thing he gets credit for that's of any value Everything else he did was evil and wicked So he, he dies after two years of reign At the age of 24 Now before we finish tonight I want to point out something that fascinates me here And it has to do with a phrase In verse 22 And the phrase is The God of his fathers The God of his fathers He forsook the Lord The God of his fathers And did not walk in the way of the Lord That phrase the God of his fathers Is used very rarely in scripture In fact, it's used nine times. We hear nine times throughout. It's a very Jewish phrase. It connects the person being talked about through his father all the way back to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God of his fathers. So his father's God was Yahweh, and so his God is Yahweh. Including here, again, it's used nine times. But the ninth time, to me, the ninth time is the most curious. Because the ninth time refers specifically to something people are curious about today, wondering about, asking about. I get a lot of questions about the coming of Antichrist. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, he says, We request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if it was from us to the effect that the day of the Lord had come. They understood clearly the day of the Lord was that time of judgment, that time of tribulation. The people in Thessalonica were afraid that this had already happened because they were going through some intense persecution at the time. And so Paul says, Don't be disturbed. Chill out. Relax. Don't worry about it. He says, Let no one in any way deceive you. For it will not come until the apostasy, or falling away, comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Paul says, Until Antichrist comes, the man of lawlessness, the day of the Lord has not happened yet. He will show up first. He will come on the scene first. The day of the Lord will soon follow. He goes on and says the following. He says, This... This man of lawlessness will be revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. The motive behind Antichrist will be that of self-defined Savior. He's going to be a guy with a major Messiah complex, and he's going to captivate the world. The way the Bible talks about him, this is going to be a guy who is such a great orator that people just fall in line. People just fall all over themselves listening to him, and he's not going to say anything. I know there are some of you right now who go, don't we have a presidential candidate like that? I I don't know, I'm not getting into that right now. But here's the thing, this is why I point this up. The description of the man of lawlessness by Daniel is very interesting here. Daniel chapter 11, verse 36. He says the king, speaking of Antichrist, will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. He will prosper until the indignation, that is the tribulation, is finished for that which is decreed will be done. But listen to this. Antichrist, he will show no regard for the god of his fathers. Now wait a minute. It's used nine times in scripture and every time it's speaking about a Jew. It is a very Jewish phrase. Is it possible that Antichrist will be Jewish? It's possible that he may at least be partially Jewish. That that might be part of the lineage that he... Did you know Hitler was? For his raging against the Jews. Hitler himself was half Jew. Unbelievable. He will show no regard for the God of his fathers. Some of your Bibles say the God's plural of his fathers, but it's the same phrase. It's the same phrase used the other times. It's Elohim, which is the same word we use for God, who is plural, who is three in one. The God of his fathers. He's not going to show any regard. It goes on and says, He will also have no regard for the desire of women. Is it possible Antichrist may be homosexual? It says he will show no regard for any other God for he will magnify himself above them all. And the reality is for all these things, whether, whether he is of homosexual leaning, whether he is of Jewish descent or these other things, the bottom line is he doesn't care for anything else but making himself God. But lifting himself, exalting himself up above all other things. And it just caught my attention that this this Ammon forsook the Lord the God of his fathers and did not walk in the way of the Lord but there's something else here that blew my mind and it has to do with Manasseh because for the writer to use this indicates not only that Ammon's fathers were Abraham, Isaac and Jacob but also that his father Manasseh had a relationship or believed in Yahweh not from what we read in 2 Kings when we looked at Manasseh, he was bloody. He was awful. He was wicked. He destroyed all the good work of Hezekiah. How could this possibly be that now Ammon you know, denies the God of his father, his father Manasseh? My assumption would be that Manasseh just didn't have any belief in God whatsoever. But that assumption is wrong. Listen to this. I'll just turn over here quickly. You can listen or follow along. Second Chronicles 33. Chronicles parallels... Second Kings, And in 2nd Chronicles 33 it tells us just a little bit more about Manasseh and what exactly happened to him. And in verse 10 of 2nd Chronicles 33 it says the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people but they paid no attention. Remember he sent all the prophets and they wouldn't listen. Therefore the Lord brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them and they captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with bronze chains and took him to Babylon. Now, listen, don't get confused here. This is not a conquest of Babylon. This is a conquest of Assyria. But at the time, Assyria had control of Babylon. So when they came and got Manasseh, they sent him to Babylon, kind of to imprison him there. When he was in distress, verse 12 He entreated the Lord his God And humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers And when he prayed to him He, that is the Lord, was moved by Manasseh's entreaty And heard his supplication And brought him again to Jerusalem, to his kingdom Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God Manasseh turned around Manasseh from the place of absolute wickedness comes to a faith in the Lord. How is this possible? You might say, "Man, He was so evil. Listen, it's not hard to see the Lord when you're in the place of humility. It's always harder to see the Lord when you're in the place of pride. When you're puffed up in yourself, as Manasseh was when he was king. But when he's humbled, when he's wiped out, when he's down on his face, when he's stuck off in Babylon, hooked through his nose, at that point, then Manasseh says... God, I was wrong. God, I have been evil. Manasseh repented. And the Lord heard him and said, All right, let's bring you home. But it gets better than that. Not only was he humbled and restored by God's hand, knowing that the Lord was God, but look at verse 15. He also then removed the foreign gods, and the idol from the house of the Lord, as well as all the altars which he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem. He threw them outside the city. He set up the altar of the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it, and he ordered Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. This is Manasseh. And what's amazing to me about this is what we started with saying, it's grace. It's grace. If you think in your life that you've gone too far for the Lord to possibly love you, if you ever hear somebody say this, would you take them to Manasseh? Okay, first of all, this is a king who saw Isaiah in half. But we find out at the end of his life that when he repented, God forgave him and restored him. Well, that's not really fair to Isaiah. Isaiah's with the Lord right now. You think he's real worried about what was fair? Sometimes we get hung up about what's fair to people around us, and God's saying, Look, I will save anybody who will turn to me and repent. I will save anybody who will humble themselves before me and come to me. All it takes is just for someone to say yes to grace. And that to me is the most amazing thing about this entire study tonight and coming through the lives of of Hezekiah and then Manasseh and Ammon is grace is there. Grace is there for Manasseh. It's the one thing needed for a life to change. It's the one thing that motivates a radical turnaround and that's grace. It's always grace. I'll end with this question in a verse. Is there anyone whose sin is so reprehensible that God cannot forgive it? And the answer is no. Titus chapter three, verse three says, We also once were foolish ourselves. We were disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but But according to his mercy By the washing of regeneration And renewing by the Holy Spirit Whom he poured out upon us richly Through Jesus Christ our Savior So that being justified by his grace We would be made heirs According to the hope of eternal life I think that's why Manasseh Reigned for 55 years He was evil He was wicked But God knew the change was coming Ammon reigned two years Why? Because God knew nothing was going to change In that man's heart But Manasseh would and all it took was for him to be humble before the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we come closer and closer to concluding chapters of Second Kings, and as we recognize the sin and the wickedness and just, oh, Father, the the sad progression of sin among these people, thank you for reminding us again of grace. We thank you that you are able to save Even one like Manasseh Because it gives all of us A great deal of hope Father there are people in my life Who I would have trouble saving There are people I am aware of Who I would have trouble giving grace to And to be honest Father I don't think I could have done it for Manasseh But you have shown us once again Lord That your grace Is so vast And so huge that it literally is beyond human comprehension so tonight fathers as we leave here we go out with that with that joy we just revel we are just awash in your grace tonight recognizing that as dark as our history may be fathers as there are shadows back there there is light ahead of us and we want to walk in that father Lord set our houses in order May we be ready when you call us home in Jesus' name. Amen.